The thrill and excitement of March Mania is here, and DraftKings Sportsbook, one of America's top-rated sportsbook apps, is giving new customers a shot to turn 5 bucks into $150 instantly in bonus bets with any college basketball bet. You can find all the lines and available odds, of course, at the DraftKings Sportsbook app. North Carolina listeners, don't forget, DraftKings Sportsbook is now live in your state. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app and use code SBNFL. New customers can bet 5 bucks to get $150 instantly in bonus bonus bets only at DraftKings Sportsbook with code SBNFL. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 8778-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash bball for eligibility, deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. Start! You can call me Bruce. Bruce Nolan is standing by. Hey, wacky Bruce! Coming to you from an undisclosed location, this is the Bruce Exclusive. And here's your host, Bruce Nolan. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to another edition of the Bruce Exclusive, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bruce Exclusive. Welcome back. And welcome to the slow time of the year between the spring and the summer. And I wasn't initially planning on having a guest tonight because tonight's episode or today's episode or whenever it is you happen to be listening to it is specifically called takes to fill the time and it's called takes to fill the time specifically because we're gonna get caught up on takes and it's the slow time of the year but then my guy sterling furrow came on board and he popped into my room sterling furrow co-host of the hoof podcast on the cover one network and i was like hey sterling dude you want to join me let's let's go let's do it because i'm always happy to have sterling on board he was like sure let's do it so sterling thank you for being here man bruce it's always a pleasure uh to to be in your presence my man you know you're I, you're the goat in my book <laughs> well, I and uh that, man. anytime i see you on i gotta i gotta hop in and see what you're talking about you know it's always a party as you say that's right i appreciate that man okay so for those of you who are new to this at the very bottom of your Spotify green room app. You will see a button that says request to speak. If you got something to say, you've got to take for us. Go ahead, hit that, bu- hit that button. I'll bring you on. We can have a conversation. When you are not talking, try to make sure that you're muted so that we don't pick up any background noise. Sound fantastic, guys? Sound fantastic. So we are going to dive right into the takes. And the first take comes from Matt, and I absolutely loved it. And it was a it was a little bit of a thought experiment, and I really enjoyed it. So Matt says, this is a question I thought of earlier today. Maybe it's interesting, maybe it's not, but feel free to talk it out on one of the podcasts if it's something you want to engage with. How many of the drought 
era Bills teams make the playoffs or compete for a division or Super Bowl if you drop 2020 Josh Allen in the quarterback spot? I always remember the talk about the roster being a quarterback away from contention. How true is that? What was the most talented roster from that era? And how much does 2020 Josh Allen elevate them? Thanks for reading. Hypotheticals aren't always interesting, but hey, maybe you'll have a slow week at some point during the offseason. I listen to the Bruce exclusive religiously. I love it. Keep up the great work, man. Best, Matt. Matt, thank you so much, man. I appreciate your listenership. It means a lot to me that I got people who are willing to take time and email me and tell me that they love the show. It's just, it's just awesome. I don't deserve you, but I appreciate it, and I'll take it every bit I can get. So I thought this was fascinating. So I'm going to go first, and I'm going to give Sterling a little bit of time to think about his answer, and then he'll go after me. So starting in the 2000 season, 2000 to 2017, these are the years, I'll go through 17 of them, the years, and whether or not I think the Bills would have made the playoffs with 2020 Josh Allen. So before we even go through them, let's make sure we understand the level of play that we are dropping in. I have said before that I do not believe that 2018 Josh Allen or 2019 Josh Allen is franchise level quarterback play. I would not have signed up for an extension if that was the only data I would have gotten or if I would have had another year in 2020 the way that I had in 2019. However, let's not underestimate and let's not undersell how good Josh Allen was in 2020. Josh Allen was extremely good in 2020. I've said before, I'll say it again, if Aaron Rodgers doesn't go absolutely bonkers, the MVP of the NFL plays in Orchard Park, New York. That's how good Josh Allen was. It was an extremely good season. I think there's a very reasonable argument to make that the season that Josh Allen just had was better than the MVP season that Lamar Jackson had in 2019. It was unbelievably good. So if you put unbelievably good quarterback play into every single one of these 17 different teams who made or missed the playoffs, then I think a lot of them are probably going to make it. So let's start with that. Let's start with the assumption that when you're dropping 2020 Josh Allen into any of the drought era Bills teams, you're probably going to do pretty well, which means you have to have a fairly bad remainder of team to be able to keep you out of the playoffs. And if you have a bad quarterback, you need an elite remainder of team. But if you've got an elite quarterback, you probably only need a passable remainder of team to be able to make it to the playoffs. So let's go through each one of these. In 2000, the Bills had the ninth-ranked offense and the third-ranked defense, and it was the last Wade Phillips season. Absolutely, that team makes the playoffs with 2020 Josh Allen. In 2001, it was the first Greg Williams year. They had the 13th-ranked offense and the 21st-ranked defense. I don't think so. I don't think this team makes the playoffs with 2020 Josh Allen. I just don't think the defense and Greg Williams were good enough to get him there. In 2002, this was the Bledsoe big year, 11th ranked O, 27th ranked defense. Maybe? They were 8-8. Eight and eight. So the last time they played in 2001, they were 3-13 and 13 in Greg Williams' first year. Do I think the addition of Josh Allen could have flipped that by seven games? Probably not. But do I think it could have flipped 2002 by two or three games? I do. Even though Bledsoe was good that year, 
Bledsoe was very good in 2002. Josh Allen was better in 2020. We had, for a long time, had that as the beacon of offensive hope during the drought was the 2002 Bledsoe year. Allen was better than that. Allen's year in 2020 was better than our previous high for 17 years when it came to offensive and passing efficiency. So I think they probably could have gotten it done in 2002. In 2003, they had the second ranked defense in the entire NFL, but the 30th ranked offense. I always thought this was a weird time in the drought because in 2002, the offense was perfectly reasonable. It was good, but the defense couldn't stop anybody. And then in 2003, it was completely the opposite. The defense was really, really rock solid. And Bledsoe completely came off the wheels. The wheels just came off him. So do I think that Josh Allen, with those 2003 weapons, which I understand the peerless price thing, trade to Atlanta, you know, Josh Reed was a disappointment. I get that. But do I think that Josh Allen inserted into that system with Kevin Gilbride and that particular offense could have been way better than 30th and been supported by a second ranked defense to be markedly better than six and 10? Yes, I do. So I think 2000, I think 2002, I think 2003, and absolutely, I think 2004. Very similar. The first year of Malarkey, the 25th ranked offense, the second ranked defense, they went nine and seven. If you get a little bit better offense, the Bills beat the Pittsburgh Steelers in that last game and they get the 10 and six and they make the playoff. One of the most heartbreaking parts of the drought. But the funny story was at that time, the drought had only been going on for a couple of years. So we didn't even know that it was as heartbreaking. I actually think the 2004 final game of the season against the Steelers got worse as the drought went on. So 2004, yes. 2005, no. 2005, there was just too much bad on that team. 28th ranked offense, 29th ranked defense. 5-11, and 11, it's too much bad. In 2006, the Bills had the 30th ranked offense and the 18th ranked defense. It was the first year of Dick Geron. That team went 7-9. and nine. I think they could have done it. I think with the bend but don't break sort of defense, middle of the pack, if you would have gotten 2020 Josh Allen on that team, I think you got to gotten two or three more wins out of them. So I think the 2006 team could have made the playoffs. 2007 was one of the most amazing miracles I have ever seen from the Buffalo Bills. They went seven and nine, despite being the 30th ranked offense and the 31st ranked defense. On paper, they were one of the worst teams in football, and they somehow went seven and nine. Listen, Dick Jerome was frustrating, but I don't think he had the ability to take a good team and make it great but I absolutely think he had the team ability to take a terrible team and make them like passable. And this was a miracle. I don't think that Josh Allen could have done a lot with that team because the supporting cast wasn't very good on offense or on defense. And I don't think that Dick Duran necessarily would have let him sling it enough to be able to make for up for a bad offense and a bad defense in 2006. He only has to really has to make up for a bad offense in 2007. He's got to make up for a bad team. So I don't think so. In 2008, it's very similar to the way it was in 2006. In 2008, the Bills had the 25th ranked offense and the 14th ranked defense, and they went seven to nine. Stop me if you've heard that before. 
with Dick Duran. Yes, I absolutely believe that that team, if you insert Josh Allen into it, makes the playoffs. Now here comes the Gailey stretch. 2009, 2010, 2011. Offense was 30th, 25th, 14th. Defense was 19th, 24th, 26th. I don't think the Bills could have made the playoffs in any of those years. 6-10, and 4-12, and 6-10, and 10, if you would have inserted Josh Allen 2020 into it. I just don't think Chan Gailey, who took a reasonable defense and absolutely bottomed it out, there was a little bit of hope at the very beginning with George Edwards where he took him from 31st to 14th, and then it slowly backslid. And by the time the Chan Gailey offense was starting to do a little bit better, it just ended up not not doing what you wanted to do. So that was a problem. So Gailey, 2010-2011. Jerron, 6-7-8, part of 9. Now we're on to the final year of Gailey, which is 2012. 19th ranked offense, 22nd ranked defense. So 19th ranked offense, 22nd ranked defense. I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think that Josh Allen inserted into any of the Gailey years, 10, 11, 12, or the end of the Jerron years, the Jerron slash Perry Fuel. We're going to fight like hell and win. Remember that? That was the Perry Fuel mantra. I don't think any of those years, the end of Jerron or all of Gailey, would have been able to be playoff teams with Josh Allen. I think the defense was too bad. Now, 2013, Doug Marone became the coach. 19th offense, 10th ranked defense. Yes, I think they make the playoffs with Josh Allen. 2014, 26th ranked O, 4th ranked defense. Yes, I think they make the playoffs with Josh Allen because I think you can go from 19th and 26th to the teens, higher teens, with Josh Allen 2020 level play. 2015, 13th ranked offense, 19th ranked defense, 8 and 8. Yes, I think you make the playoffs with Josh Allen. 2016, 16th ranked offense, 19th ranked defense, seven and nine. Yes, again, I think you make. I think you make the playoffs with Josh Allen. Sorry, I have the hiccups all of a sudden. I don't know what happened. 2017, which they ended up making the playoffs, 29th on O, 26th on defense. They made the playoffs with Tyrod Taylor. Yes, they'll absolutely make it with 2020 Josh Allen. So. Through all the years, here are the ones I think the Bills make the playoffs if they get 2020 Josh Allen. 2000, 2002, 2003, 2004, 2006, 2008, 2013, 14, 15, 16, 17. 11 of the 17-year playoff drought, I think, end up making the playoffs with Josh Allen. So yes is the answer to your question. I always remember the talk about being a quarterback away. How true is that? I think it was very true. I think there's a lot of times the Bills were a quarterback away. I think the most talented rosters of those eras were the 2004 and the 2014 teams. And I think that Josh Allen makes them at least a playoff team, if not a division challenger and a divisional round level playoff team. So that's my opinion. I made sure I gave Sterling lots of time to be able to kind of digest. So Sterling, now that you've looked at this and now that you've heard me talk about it, what do you think? What do you have to add? If you toss Josh Allen 
into these particular years, what do you think makes a difference? Well, I think if you toss Josh Allen into any of these years, I think you have to just just the basic research that I've have been able to do in the last five to ten minutes. I think you have to at least give them at least five wins each season. Okay. Ooh, strong. And yeah. So, so since since the year two thousand, the the Bills only had two quarterbacks to eclipse thirty eight hundred yards in the season. Drew Bledsoe in two thousand two. And Ryan Fitzpatrick in 2011. Now, we all know that, you know, the league changed from 2000 to 2021, right? It was more run heavy. But Drew, Drew Bledsoe came in and, and uh, in 2002 and put up 24 touchdowns, 15 interceptions, 4,359 yards. So people were still passing the ball. So I think with Josh Allen's ability to close games late, his ability to take pressure – uh, you know, off the defense and facilitate the run game, you know, because if we're talking about just Josh Allen's year last year, I mean, he's going to give you 400 yards, eight touchdowns. So mm-hmm. I think if you multiply that over time, I think the only teams that don't make the playoffs are 2013 and 2010 and 2001. So three teams from the drought era, I think Josh Allen takes every single team to the playoffs. That I think what he brings to the table, I think, gives you at least five wins. We're also talking about a Bills team that they teetered around six, seven, eight, nine wins every single year. Heartbreaking losses. You know, you got you got Tom Brady coming into his own and, and, and Bill Bellett. I mean, it was the AFC East was for the taking. The, the Patriots weren't the dynasty that they were, I would say, probably toward. You know, the 2010s, you, you saw Tom Brady really ascend and take off to, to being the GOAT that he is today. So I think you, you put Josh Allen in those early years. I think there's only three seasons where they don't make the playoffs. Man, I thought I was being super strong when I said 11 out of 17. You went 14 out of 17. So uh, now let me ask you, the 2014 and the 2014 team, those are the two I think are the most talented groups of the of the drought. Would you agree with that? Uh, 2014. Yeah, that was Sammy Watkins first year. So we had Kyle Lorton in there. Yeah. I mean, we had, uh, you know, a young Fred, well, Fred Jackson was what, how old was Fred Jackson? Probably. I think he was probably 30. He's probably in his thirties, 33 years old. And yeah, I think that was probably the best top to bottom. We had a solid offensive line. Oh, only thing we did, we had central Henderson starting at right tackle. Okay. Mm-hmm. He did start 16 games. But we all know what Central Henderson turned out. But we had the cold front. And the defense is what kept the Bills in games that year. The defense did. I mean, you. I think uh, Jerry Hughes was coming into his own. Uh, mm-hmm. He had 10 sacks. Marcel Darius had 10 sacks, I believe. Uh, and then Mario Wilms, I think that was his 14-and-a-half sack season. So, mm-hmm. yeah, a young Nigel Bradham, Ron Books uh, in the slot. I mean, the Bills are pretty damn good. So I would probably say that 2014 team was the best they had in the drought seasons. So you said maybe you add five wins. Do you think that nine and seventeen becomes a fourteen and two team? Uh I would say thirteen and three at least. Strong man. Thirteen that's and three. Strong. I, and, and that's not and you Bruce, and you know I'm I'm not like a homer where I'm just no. you know, I, I'm critical of Josh when it's time to be critical, but Josh Allen is that good. He is a generational mm. talent in my opinion. And I think once you have that, I think he brings and elevates the level of play of everyone around him. That's what he does. 
I think that there's, I'm going to do it again. Okay. Just so you know, I'm going to do it again. We already did it, but we're going to do it again. I don't think, I think we really need to have a real significant discussion because I think that I get some weird amounts of hate on the interwebs as somehow I'm like a Josh Allen hater or whatever, because I don't think he was, I don't think he was a good player in 2019. I think he was meh in 2019. He was okay. But we, we really need to understand how good Josh Allen was in 2020 and that there's a possibility of regression this year just because of how good he was, not because he actually gets worse, just because it's hard to do a lot better than that. I mean, Josh Allen was number two in CPOE, number three in EPA per play, number five in NEA, number three in QBR, number four in passer rating, number three in DVOA, number five in PFF grade. So to put that in perspective, those averages, the two scores that you know from listening to the Bruce exclusives in the past – it was better than Lamar Jackson's in 2019. It was better than Carson Wentz's in 2017 when he was a MVP candidate. There were multiple MVP years that were not as good as the year that Josh Allen just had. The best years ever recorded by this particular metric, right, that is obviously proprietary, is Aaron Rodgers in 2020 and Matt Ryan when he won the MVP award. So, the person who had the highest QB stew has won the MVP award every single t- every single year a quarterback has done it. So it's a pretty good predictor of uh, pretty good predictor of uh, MVPs. So I'm pretty happy about that. But it was really, really good, like really good. So I know it sounds bold when Sterling says, "Hey man, you know maybe five wins, four wins, five wins to each of these teams." But Josh Allen was that good in 2020. So there's going to be a a conversation that I'm going to have to have at some point about regression and people are going to get really mad at me because I'm going to say, sure, there's a possibility Josh Allen regresses last next year, not because he actually gets worse, just because it's really hard to do better than that. It's really hard to do better. He could still be, he could regress a little bit and still be an elite quarterback who takes his team to a Super Bowl and wins it. That's how good he was in 2020. You could get regressed Josh Allen and still be a top five quarterback in the NFL. So let's not lose sight of that. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity, but giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year, at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. So we're going to go on to the next take. The next take is from Judge Patchen. He says, although there was much discussion, on how COVID affected the 2020 players, not being able to be at the facility, no OTAs, rookie camp, mini camp. It seems to me that the most affected players were the 2019 drafted players. 
They played in 19, but they couldn't use the offseason with the full access to the facilities and the various team activities to give them the boost going into the 2020 season. We saw people like Oliver and Knox play better in the second half of the season, which wasn't surprising. But would that production have been there at the start of the season rather than game nine-ish had it been a quote-unquote regular season? I feel like it really takes a full season to understand what it takes to play in the NFL. Not just on the field matters, but the full gamut of facilities, staff, weight room, conditioning, the demands on one's time, the newly found finances, and the fact that it's a full-time job. Just my two cents today. Patchen. So, I love this take. I love it. I'm not going to say that the 2019 players were more affected than the 2020 players. I will say I think it's probably equal. Because if you think about it this way, the 2019 drafted players don't really get a full offseason of training anyway. Because all of the pre-draft crap that you have to go through in training for the combine and going on the media tours and all the stuff that goes along with that. Going and being at the combine and having a bunch of interviews and going out for pro days and trying out for teams, things like that. That doesn't really give you a chance to work on your craft. It just gives you a chance to impress someone. It's a little bit like job interviews. When you go and interview for the job, you're not actually getting better at the job. You're just getting better at interviewing for the job. You could do it a million times. I could interview for an engineering job 17 times, but I'm not getting better at being an engineer. I'm just getting better at interviewing for engineering jobs. And it's the same thing. So they didn't really have an offseason anyway. So their first real offseason, it's one of the reasons why you hear people talk about the jump that players make from year one to year two. It's because that, that first offseason isn't really a thing for them. You need to get to the offseason after their first regular season. And that's when it really can come together. And they don't have that. So that's just as significant as it is if this is your first offseason, because neither one of them has been through a normal offseason. Whether you were drafted in 19 or whether you were drafted in 20, both of them didn't get a normal offseason yet. So I think those things are about equal, and I love the tick. Sterling, I would, be, I would love to hear your input on this, because I didn't really think about it a lot until I got the email. But I think there's a reason why that second-year jump didn't happen for as many players across the NFL as we would have expected it to happen. Because that second year jump is facilitated by the offseason and they didn't get it. What do you think? I mean, I think it does. It plays in the fact. I think it plays into it affects them. But, you know, that's what I want to believe, because I want to believe that AJ Epinesa and those guys, I want to, I want to believe the best. I want them to, to, to come in and have an impact. But then I go through the, the, the list of guys that were drafted. Now, and you take away the team that they were drafted to, you know, and maybe just look at what they did statistically. Um, I, I guess, it, I mean, team does matter, but Joe Burrow, Chase Young, Justin Herbert, Derek Brown, Jedrick Willis, Tristan Wirth, C.D. Lamb, Justin Jefferson, Cesar, uh, Cesar Ruiz, Brandon Ayuk. I mean, there are guys that were drafted in the first round that played their ass off. They played really well, despite being and coming into the league during the pandemic you got second round you got uh michael Pittman jr i mean then the list goes on and on so i guess there's some players that are more ready made so they don't need as much time to develop but you know the bills draft on prototype when they look at uh offensive line and defensive linemen and uh aj epinesa is one of those guys that needed development he needs time so yeah, I think the pandemic definitely played a fact into it. I mean, because I think he's limited athletically. 
Um, and then he totally changed his body composition uh, last year to where he was a lot lighter. So I think time definitely does uh, benefit players like that. But had you drafted, you know, or had the ability and position to draft ready-made talent, we probably wouldn't be having this conversation today. I, I think it's one of the things that needs to be discussed is that drafting on prototype means drafting with a curve. That's the way that works. If you're going to draft someone who's toolsy and you're going to turn him into something, then your, your draft picks are always going to have more significant of a tail. You saw that with Tremaine Evans. You saw it with Ed Oliver. You saw it with Josh Allen. You see these, these teams that draft based on prototype, and they do it mostly because they know they have job security. You know, if you don't have job security, you trade up for a quarterback. One of the ways I knew, I absolutely knew the Chicago Bears were going to trade up for a quarterback is because they're all going to get fired if they don't. It's that simple. But when you know you have the job security, you have a tendency to draft on prototype because you're taking upside. So that makes sense. So we've got somebody in the comments here who's going to need to have a chat with us. So, Eby, you are up, man. What do you got for me and what do you got for Sterling? Good evening, fellas. Sterling, Bruce, thanks for having me on. Uh, I got to give props to your take on that first uh, take of the night. You, you take me back through some Buffalo Bills coaches from Greg Williams to Malarkey to the Chan Gailey years. That was that was some trip. Anyway, um, the reason for my the take, I saw something on Twitter today about Beasley and McKenzie, and the guy had some clips of McKenzie when he broke out for those three TDs in the slot against Denver. And it was kind of to the effect of if we lose Beasley for whatever reason – we all kind of know what's happening. How would McKenzie be option A? How good would he or could he be? Um, could it be somebody else like a Hodgins or something like that? So uh, thanks, fellas. I'll take your answer off of you. Cool. Thanks a lot, man. Okay, so I'll start with this one. So first off, I, I don't think Isaiah McKenzie is a preferable option. I think that's a, um, I, I think that's a, a take that is born out of emotion from people not liking some of the things that Cole Beasley has said. Uh, Cole Beasley is one of the better wide receivers in the slot in the NFL. He had the most yards in the slot of any wide receiver in the NFL. He had the eighth most separation from any wide receiver in the slot in the NFL and was consistently reliable on third downs, moving the chains. And I think has been a big part of Josh Allen's development with the ability to be able to uncover quickly and get those quick third and four and third and six first downs that you need to keep the chain moving. I think that it's very, very difficult in this league to stay consistent. One of the reasons why the NFL is moving toward more explosive styles of offense is because they recognize that ball control offense is difficult because what you're doing is you're demanding your players be on point and be perfect for longer periods of time. If I only have to be good for three plays, that's a lot easier than trying to be good for 13 plays. And so being able to have something that's reliable to be able to get you that next first down is extremely important. Now, I'm not saying that Isaiah McKenzie doesn't potentially have upside as a slot receiver in this league, but if you think Cole Beasley is one of the best slot receivers in the league, and I do, I mean, the guy got an all-pro vote for a reason. It's because the person who was making the all-pro vote felt like you needed to have a pure slot, and because of that, he picked Cole Beasley. That's the reason why Cole Beasley was a second-team all-pro is because Peter King specifically said – that, hey, I want to have a slot re receiver. I want a pure slot receiver. Let's put Cole Beasley in. That was the first person that came to his mind. 
And Cole Beasley is a well-respected slot receiver on the league. So I think that if Cole Beasley were to not be part of this team, I don't think about it too much because I don't think it's going to happen. But if that were to be the case, I do think that Isaiah McKenzie and maybe a bigger slot receiver would have to jointly deal with that. I think Isaiah McKenzie has been around Josh Allen and the program, Brian Dable, long enough that they would probably trust him to be able to do some of that. But he may not be so dynamic in that spot that you would trust him on all snaps. And you might want to mix it up with a bigger slot player like Isaiah Hodgins, potentially, who could be more of that David Nelson Y player in your offense. So I do think you probably have to ask multiple people to try to fill the role because there's no singular person who's as good as Cole Beasley is at what Cole Beasley does. Sterling, I'd love to hear your take on it. Uh, you hit on a lot of points that I would uh, that I would even touch on, but I would ask yourself, how many teams would Isaiah McKenzie start for in the slot? And that was the first thing I thought of when you started talking. I'm, I'm like, probably none. You know, I think Isaiah McKenzie benefits more from the mastermind uh, of an offensive coordinator that Brian Dable is. And the fact that the Bills have a real legitimate options at slot and on the outside with Stefan Diggs. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that um, McKenzie really, I mean, I appreciate the player McKenzie is, and he, he does his role. He does his one eleventh, but I think he benefits just like Gabe Davis benefited from, you know, uh, being wide open. I mean, they even joke about it in the locker room. You've heard Stefan Diggs in the interview say, yeah, I wish I could catch touchdown passes like Gabe Davis wide open. And if you go look at Gabe Davis's take this past year, the guy's catching touchdown passes wide open. So, the, you know, Isaiah McKenzie, the player on the field, okay, so, you know, I don't see him getting off of press man coverage consistently. That's not his thing. Does he have the, the body type to hold up to – uh, a, you know, a strenuous 16-game NFL season or 17-game now plus the playoffs. I, I just don't think that's he's not that guy. And if he was that guy, he'd probably be somewhere else because somebody would have picked him up. So I think the NFL knows what Isaiah McKenzie is. The Buffalo Bills know what Isaiah McKenzie is. Now, if you talk about if Cole Beasley decides he he's not going to play this year, which I don't think he will, but I, my vote would be Isaiah Hodgins. I think Isaiah Hodgins is a better route runner uh, than Gabe Davis's, I think he probably gives you a little. He gives you a little bit more in the hands area, um, and he's bigger. He's six foot four, so I think he, like you were talking about, Bruce, he's that that why you know you kind of move him around, you know, kind of in like a, in a hybrid role. So that's that's who would get it in my vote. But yeah, so I kind of I guess we're kind of saying the same things, but um, that's just my take on that. Yeah, I think the fact that Isaiah McKenzie was out there and came back for one year, one million, is pretty telling of what the NFL currently thinks of Isaiah McKenzie. So if his best value was with the Bills for one million, then I I don't think there's an idea out there that he's a full-time starting slot receiver. That doesn't mean it's not possible. It just means that's currently not the book on him. So Evan says, I'm sorry I have a less than positive take. After the NFLPA publishing vaccinated versus non-vaccinated guidelines for players and seeing Cole Beasley's response, the Buffalo Bills are going to have some sort of issues arise from this, and it could cost them dearly. Anyway, I was the one worrying about McDermott being Marvin Lewis and Josh Allen being Carson Wentz, so what do I know? Okay, here's the only thing I'll typically say about that. I don't think the Bills are unique in some of their players' stances on the vaccination. I think they might be necessarily more vocal, but I don't think they're unique. So 
I don't think this is a uh, an uncommon stance for a lot of NFL players to have. I think you've seen multiple players on other teams start to share the same line of thinking that Cole Beasley did. So I don't think this is a, a uniquely Buffalo Bills issue. And because I don't think it's a uniquely Buffalo Bills stance, I also don't think that the problems that any it could generate would be uniquely Buffalo Bills. So that's the only thing I'll, I'll, I'll say on that. I don't think that's a uh, I don't think this is a uniquely Buffalo Bills issue. After listening to a recent podcast of yours where you mentioned the McDermott masterclass and one of his traits is adaptability, my take is I think he'll be even more aggressive in 2021 than he was in 2020. McDermott was more aggressive in 2020 than t- with 2019 with Josh as his frame of reference, and I think it was most aggressive season to date. Now with 2020 Josh to draw on and coming off the most prolific scoring offense in Bill's history, I believe he'll be even more aggressive knowing they can overcome most deficits. And if the defensive performance returns to the mean, I think even more so. Separate topic. I listened to the Worry Algorithm podcast, and I've been kicking around an ideal in my head for a draft algorithm. It starts by assigning an expected contribution by round. First pro bowler, second starter, third starter, and then grading the pick based on whether or not they exceeded the contributions by round or fell short. I have to put pen to paper at some point and work it out, but I still need to figure out expected contribution for later rounds. Feel free to run with this in your spare time. So now this is really important. Let's go with the first thing. McDermott being more aggressive. McDermott was fairly aggressive when it came to fourth downs in 2020. I'm not entirely sure he can be a whole lot more aggressive. So I think there's a chance you might see a little bit more of it, but he was one of the more aggressive coaches in the NFL. So it seems very much like the Josh Allen discussion. It's hard to be a lot better than Josh Allen was in 2020. It's hard to be a lot more aggressive than Sean McDermott was in 2020. So I think there's a chance it's a little bit, but I think you get diminishing returns based on how aggressive he was previously. On the draft algorithm thing, there are lots of people who are attempting to do this now. Pro reference, ProFootballReference.com has a draft contribution algorithm that they use. Uh, there is a Buffalo Bills content creator out there who is a built-in Buffalo uh, con- contributor who is specifically working on a draft algorithm. His name is Charlie Gross. There's lots of people who are attempting to do this. So at some point, would I try my hand at it? Maybe. But I'll level with it. QB Stewart took me about a year to curate and figure out all the – and I had, to, I had to learn all of those seven metrics that make up QB Stew. I had to learn all of them until I know them like the back of my hand. And that's, that's complicated. It's hard because I have to be able to defend why one thing's high and one thing's low. And if I don't know the algorithms like the back of my hand – I just throw my hands up in the air and go, I don't know. And that's not good enough. If I'm going to put something out in front of you guys, I need to understand it. So, dude, I might be I might be retired by the time I figure that stuff out. So I don't know if you can count on me for doing it. But Sterling, let's go back to aggressiveness. Do you think on tap for McDermott is more aggressiveness in 2021? No, I don't think he'll have to be. I think some factors that we're not considering is the strength of schedule. You know, the, the Buffalo Bills had one of the tougher strength of schedules last year. Uh, this year, you know, it's one of the easier strength of schedules. You know, they have some rookie quarter, uh, quarterbacks they're going to be facing. Also, I think that, you know, like you were saying, how much more aggressive can he be? You know, I think Josh Allen, uh, he'll probably he, – I don't think he'll be better, right, so statistically. I think he'll probably clean a few areas up of his game. But 
I really don't see him having to be aggressive. I really do think that, you know, with the additions that they have on the defensive line, and I think, you know, just having that time to gel in training camp and these OTAs and so forth, you're going to see a much better product from the defense. So I think what the Bills are going to do, my just my prediction is they're going to get up on teams early, and then I think you're going to see the defense choke teams out literally. Like it, they're they're going to they're going to put their foot down, and it's not going to be pretty. You know, I'm not saying they're going to blow every team out by 20 points, but you know, we last year there was a a kind of a let's say we kind of had this thing. Well, you know, the Bills are going to come out in the third quarter, and it's not you know we, we kind of lack in the third quarter. I think we see some of those things show up this year. I think the defense is going to be much better. So I don't think McDermott is going to have to be as aggressive. I think that's reasonable. I, mean, I, I think one of the things we aren't talking about enough is what if the defense bounces back? What if they go from being okay in 2020 to pretty good in 2021? How much of a regression could we see from the offense and still be fine? You know, if the offense goes from the second highest scoring offense in the NFL to the fifth highest scoring offense in the NFL, but the defense takes leaps and bounds forward, I think we're all going to be okay with that. I would be okay with that, quite frankly, because I just want a better team in total. Now, obviously, I I do think that offense correlates more significantly with winning than defense does, and quarterbacks correlate more significantly with offense. But I do think that we're not talking enough about what if that bounces back and what stress does that relieve on some other things jamie says unfortunately i'm gonna have to be a negative nancy daggone it jamie and i I, he says i need some reassurance from me i have a feeling that the bills are going to be the architects of their own downfall this season and i'll try and set out my thought process for you first if you're standing still in a sport you're going backwards i don't see any major improvements in the squad from last year and the bills have major question marks in certain areas especially in the return department. Most of the improvement mentioned over last season is players being a year older, and that's something that happens to every player on every team. The reason most content creators have given as to why the Bills will improve with the same squad is due to injuries and missing players last year. Injuries are part and parcel of sports and can happen to any player at any time. We could luck out, keep the squad injury-free, but then Josh Allen's ACL go. It gets out for 90% of the season, and the Bills struggle and make the playoffs. People point out that the first team offensive line, Morse, Feliciano, Ford, Dawkins, Williams, never played together last season. And the same could happen again, equally, or it could be far worse. The other problem with running the same team back is that there's now a lot of tape on you and the things which took the league by surprise the year before. You lost that element of surprise and oppositions have 19 matches of footage of you to dissect over the offseason looking for weaknesses. Finally, And the reason why I wrote about this is COVID. I believe the Bills will struggle with the additional requirements for non-vaccinated players. And I wouldn't be surprised if there aren't a couple of major breakouts over the season. I understand this will be happening to every team in the NFL, yet eyes are firmly on the Bills at the moment regarding this issue. I assume we'll find out the start of the season who's vaccinated isn't based on masks and etc. However, from the various media interactions, the Bills do seem to have some players who may be non-vaccinated in a few extremely important positions. If an outbreak occurs in camp, This could seriously affect these key players with the additional weight of having to be one of the few who has to deal with the NFL runs regarding non-vaccinated players. Added to this would be mental fatigue that the non-vaccinated players will have to endure due to the protocols they're facing. For the season which, fingers crossed, potentially promises a visit to the Super Bowl, we could also be looking at a top 20 pick in next year's draft. 
2021 version of the Bickering Bills, just without the Super Bowl visits. Apologizes for rambling. It's pretty difficult to articulate such a difficult subject without being judgmental toward player choice. Okay, so I talked a little bit about vaccination, non-vaccination stuff already. Um, I do think that this is not a uniquely Buffalo issue. I think that really it was just a, a factor of who was more vocal with it. And that's the reason why you said all eyes are on the Bills. I do not think there's something unique about Buffalo Bills players where they have a particular stance on vaccination and other people don't. So I think that's far more evenly spread across the league than potentially it might seem. Now, in regards to the other things, I think that, I think one of the things we think about when we talk about improvement is I mentioned getting better and I did an entire podcast on getting better earlier this off season. And that improvement is based on this first data point you use. Improvement based on what? So if the Bills let Darrell Williams walk, they let Matt Milano walk, but they spend that money on free agents that play similar positions or different positions, are they better? Are they worse? What's the scenario at that point? Because I think that the way is that Matt Milano could potentially have been gone, but wasn't. Darrell Williams could potentially have gone and wasn't. There's plenty of other teams that didn't bring back the same group. So we think bringing back the same group is by definition staying level, but it's not. It's based on your position versus everybody else. If you throw for 10 touchdowns, whether or not that's good or not is based on what everybody else did. One of the reasons why QB still exists is because eras have a tendency to mess with our understanding of what's good and what's not. What's good and what's not is relative to your peers. If you're a salesman and you sell five units on Thursday, and only thing I've told you right now is that you're a salesman and you sold five units on Thursday. That's it. That's all I told you. Now I'm going to ask you, was that good? What are you going to say? I don't know. I have no idea if that's good. I don't know what good is. I have no frame of reference. It's a little bit like that for the NFL. So it's a frame of reference discussion. I do think that bringing back Milano and bringing back Darrell Williams is a big part of this. I do think that Emmanuel Sanders is an upgrade over John Brown. Also, you're bringing in Emmanuel Sanders and you're assuming that you might get him for 17 games. You only got John Brown for a handful last year. So that's a fairly significant offensive upgrade. You went from John Brown for a handful of games to potentially Emmanuel Sanders for 17. That's a significant upgrade. And one of the reasons why I think it's a little bit different for the Bills when it comes to player development is because of something that Sterling mentioned earlier today. He specifically said the Bills draft based on prototype. And I said, you're going to have kind of a longer tail. They did it with Tremaine Evans. They did it with Josh Allen. They did it with Ed Oliver. They did it with Dawson Knox. They drafted based on traits. This means the tail is longer, but the upside's higher. So if you're a franchise that drafts ready-made people right now, but they might have a lower ceiling, then the development year over year is not as much of a potential boon to you and your organization as it is to the Bills. Now, I'm not going to go through every single team and talk about their drafting philosophy and whether other applies, but I do think that when you look at the players who could potentially get better, you look at the positions they play, you look at how important those positions are to the success of the team, I do think it's reasonable to be able to say, yeah, if Dawson Knox... Ed Oliver, Tremaine Edmonds, not all of them, two of them, one of them, ends up playing really well, 
that could have a significant impact on the team. And that could potentially be an upgraded addition. So I understand that. I, I totally get that. Now, running the same team back in regards to a lot of tape on you, that's something where you're just going to have to trust Brian Dable. I actually don't think the offense looked a lot like it did in 2019 and 2020. We saw a shift between gap and zone blocking a little bit of the way into the year. That was very, very different. The run scheme was very different at the end of 2020 than it was at the beginning of 2019. Sterling was actually on with me previous this offseason when we talked about offensive line prospects in the NFL draft. We specifically talked about man versus zone scheme. And when we did that, we mentioned that Brian Dable's offense at the end of 2020 looked very different than it did at the beginning of 2019. And there's a lot to it. The Bills do a lot of stuff. They do play action under center. They do zone read. They do RPO. They do a lot of motion. There's a lot of stuff in the Bills offense. I've said before, Brian Dable's offense is not the kiddie pool. It's the deep end. And that actually will help out a little bit when it comes to other teams catching up. So that's my long-winded response to the Bills potentially being architects of their own downfall by both running back the team and also having some fairly vocal discussions about the COVID vaccination. So Sterling, I turn it over to you once again for your wisdom, running it back. Should we be concerned? Should we not be concerned? How concerned should we be? I'm of the opinion that I'm not like pounding the table and saying it's the best thing in the entire world, but when your team was that good, it's, it's hard to go a lot better. Like we talked about with Josh Allen, like we talked about with Sean McDermott and I do think that there's some key potential for upgrade there. And you know me, I'm not known as being an overly optimistic guy, but I think it might be okay. What do you think, Sterling? Yeah, I think you have to look at it through two lens. I think you have to look at it from, okay, what are they facing this year? And then I think you have to look at it from a historical and um, kind of a, a, a lo- the long view, right? So we talk about this year coming up, okay? The Bills are going to face Tua Tagovailoa twice, Tyrod Taylor is probably going to be the start in Houston. You got Trevor Lawrence with the Jaguars facing him once. Zach Wilson with the Jets twice. You're probably going to face, what, Taysom Hill or Jameis Wilson with the the Saints. That's one time. And then you have the combination of Cam Newton and Mac Jones. Okay? What's that? Two, four, six. That's nine games. So I'm going to say the Bills, you know, low ball, seven wins there. Right? And then you have the rest of their schedule. There is no way that the Bills are not going to win at least 12 games this year. They're that good. If you look at it from a league point of view, the Bills probably have the fourth or fifth best roster in the NFL. Okay. Now here's the long view. So, and I'm going to use a correlation between for basketball here. I think when I tell you this, it's going to make sense to you. Okay. So, and I'm just fleshing this out with you guys. Okay. But we're going to talk about dynasties. I'm not saying the Buffalo Bills is a dynasty, but what I'm telling you is, what they the Bills have in place, they have a core in place, okay? Which you got your head coach, you got your GM, and you got a generational quarterback, okay? That's football. Here, here are some dynasties that you can take a take kind of look at. The Celtics from 57 to 69 won 11 titles. The Los Angeles Lakers from 1980 to 88 won five titles. Detroit from 89 to 90, they won two titles back-to-back. Then Michael Jordan took over the league that we all know, 91 and 98. They won six titles. The Spurs took over from there, 99 to 2007. This is how long their dynasty lasted. And then you had the Warriors with the last dynasty from 2015 to 2018, and they won three NBA titles in spite of what LeBron James was being able to do. 
So if you look at, you know, I'm a, I'm an NBA head as well. So you look at those NBA teams that had a core in place. Now they had some of the, the fluff players, you know, players, role players, those guys come and go, right? If you look at Tom Brady and the New England Patriots dynasty, what did they have? They had Bill Belichick and they had Tom Brady and everything else was up for debate, right? Those are true dynasties. So I think the Buffalo Bills, we may not be a dynasty, but I would dare say right now, we probably are a tier or rung right below it, okay? They have to knock off Kansas City Chiefs. If they can knock off, if the Bills can surpass the Chiefs, then all bets are off. I mean, the Bills could definitely win, you know, two to three Super Bowls in Josh Allen's era. And and I am, a, um, I am not the optimistic guy when it comes to uh, – the bills. Like I, I really do try to look at things from a logistical point of view, but there's also some correlations to, to some historical facts, not just in, in, in football, but in basketball that you have to look at. And if we believe Josh Allen is a generational talent that he is, we know Sean McDermott, isn't going anywhere. I would say Sean McDermott is probably a top 10 coach, right? Top five, probably. And then you would have to say, Brandon Bean is a top five GM in this league. And that's not even being a homer. So with the combination of those things, I think you have to look at this team and go, huh, look at what Brandon Bean has done with this team since taking over in the, in the last four years. I mean, the, the roster shift has been a complete change altogether. Do we, do we think that's going to continue? Absolutely. One of the things that, I, that, that we have to look at when we examine Brandon Bean and the way he rosters, um, when he puts his rosters together, that he's not he's not always looking for the home run. Now, me, if I was a GM, I'm kind of the home run guy. I want the big name. I want to win now. But it's always been, you know, for the future, for the future. That's why you see a slew of, you know, you see a slew of one-year contracts with some of these guys like Isaiah McKenzie, right? But you're going to see him pay money for guys like Matt Milano, Darrell Williams. So the Bills definitely have a nucleus and core intact. And I think that's what is when I sleep at night, those are the things that keep me optimistic about what's going on now and the future of the Buffalo Bills. So I think that's an interesting thing that we need to talk about. I don't think the Bills are used to the Bills fans anyway, are used to we have a top eight quarterback, a top eight head coach and a top eight GM. If you've got that thing, you got a shot, period. You've got a shot. If those three things are true, if you have a top eight quarterback, a top eight coach and a top eight GM that might, that's enough to punch your chicken ticket right there. You can get a ticket, a golden ticket. I got a golden ticket. I mean, you can have those things and that'll get you in. So we're going to go to the lines. We got Andy Anderson here on with us right now. Andy, my man, you are on with Bruce and Sterling. What you got for me, dude? Awesome. Can you hear me? I can hear you, man. All right. Awesome. So you actually just touched a little bit on my uh, take. I've been thinking about this since the OTAs. And I mean, we don't obviously like I listened to the uh, uh, podcast he did with Matt Perino. We don't know everything that's going on, but it sounds like the defense is clicking this year in a way that it wasn't last off season. We might see a resurgence back to 2017's defense, 2018's defense, 2019's defense. If that happens, um, I think this team's unstoppable. I mean, unless unless the wheels fall off for Josh, which I don't see that happening either. Um, I think I think this team's going to be absolutely unstoppable. We're gonna we're gonna blow the brakes off a lot of mediocre teams, and I think 
this team has the chance to actually knock off Kansas City now. So that's my take. All right, man. So I agree with you. Obviously, we talked about it already. I think we're not talking enough about if you maintain the level of offensive production you got and then you get a better defense, what does this team look like? The answer is really good. (laughs) It looks like really good. So we got somebody else on the line with us. Andy, a different Andy. Andy the second. Andy Jr., the second coming of Andy. Andy, make sure you are unmuted. And then go ahead and hit me hit me with your take, man. Bruce Nolan, my man, V-Man, K-Pass, what's going down, what it is. Dude, it's a party all the time. How about yourself, man? Excellent, excellent. So, uh, it's talking about dynasties. Got me thinking about a long-term take, not necessarily for this season. And not necessarily involving, you know, the Bills team in particular. Uh, but the, the take, the upshot, is that uh, Chad Hall is the most important coach assistant coach, I should say, on the staff of the Buffalo Bills, and he will be the first successful branch, correction, the first successful twig of the Sean McDermott branch of the Andy Reid coaching tree. Reason, <laughs> reason why I say that is because uh, I, I heard something a long time ago that great coaches aren't on to offensive gurus, not defensive gurus. They are great leaders of men. And I think uh, if uh, Stefan Diggs's um, GQ interview where he talked about how Chad Hall recognized that there was a vocal leadership void in the locker room and challenged Diggs to fill that void. Plus, we, we know that the locker, that the wide receiver rooms loves him. Plus, you talked about on the pod that dropped today how the wide receivers are pretty good at getting up to speed quickly in this offense. Uh, I think those, that is a recipe for Chad Hall to have excellent success as a head coach in the NFL. That's fantastic. I will say this. I do think that one of the things that you should keep an eye on if if slash when Brian Dable leaves, I thought he was going to be gone already, but if he leaves after the 2021 season, as far as promotions from inside, I think the natural extension is everyone looks at Ken Dorsey. I think maybe you should look at Chad Hall. I think there's a very reason, reasonable chance that if they look at promoting from within, that Chad Hall is a guy that they like and a guy that could potentially be that offensive coordinator. And if Brian Dable goes out there and shows some promise, NFL teams might go back to the well again and say, well, let's get the next offensive coordinator and go get Chad Hall. So I don't think it's an insane take. The wide receivers absolutely love Chad Hall. And these position coaches that are good at what they do because they communicate well, because they're leaders of men, because they're organized, because they're good CEOs, because they understand how to connect with people, these things, they're adaptable, they're, they're low ego. I think that these things are things that can potentially make you a good head coach. It makes you a good leader in general, right? Um, I've said before on this podcast that when it comes to leadership, there are multiple things that matter, all, that, all of which start with C. People will not follow you if they do not think you're competent. People will not follow you if you don't have courage, if you're not willing to make tough decisions, if you're a spineless. And people will not follow you if they don't think you care about them. Now, they may be un- under you, like you may have authority over them, but authority and leadership are not the same thing. So I think you have to make a decision as far as who you're going to follow. And when you do, you're subconsciously valuing those things. And I think Chad Hall is a, a player, a, a player, a coach who has those things. So for me, I'm all the way in on Chad Hall, potentially not only being the next offensive coordinator of the Buffalo Bills, but also potentially being head coach someday. Sterling, do you have thoughts on Chad Hall? I'd love to be able to get him if you got him. Yeah, no, I, I'm a big fan of uh, Chad Hall and Ken Dorsey. I think, you know, those are two guys I think that the Bills 
um, they're not gonna they're not gonna easily just let them guys walk out the door. You know, I think this is probably, you know, Brian Dable's last year. Then again, you know, you look at uh, you know, Josh McDaniels in New England kind of stuck around forever. So I mean, it could be one of those situations, but both of those guys have the right makeup for you, you look at, you know, the Bills now are a more progressive thinking organization than we were years ago. You know, when when people think of the Buffalo Bills now, they think, oh, yeah, this is a progressive team and they're going to pass it all over the yard. But if you looked at the Buffalo Bills from years past, well, they say, well, their eh, defense is good. The ground and pound. Eh, eh, eh. There was all these other narratives. But now everybody knows what the Buffalo Bills are. And, and the only common denominator that I can really think of is the word glue. Look at look at Sean McDermott when he was with the Eagles. He actually failed as a defensive coordinator. Andy Reid let him go. He goes to Carolina. And every just think about everything that you know about Sean McDermott and look at the correlation to Josh Allen. How they are they are such extreme workaholics and they hate and they embrace when they mess up. And that is the thing when Sean McDermott first came in and he talked about culture. That is the thing that permeates through the Buffalo Bills locker room to this day. That's why when players come to Buffalo, they talk about being the best versions of themselves because it's not just X's and O's, but it's actually, you know, it's almost spiritual if you want to look at it that way. I mean, these guys really, there is a synergy. There is a a real respect for one another. So back to the original point, I think Chad Hall and Ken Dorsey also embody that culture that Sean McDermott has brought to Buffalo. Love it. All right. We're coming down the home stretch. I got a food take. Are you ready, Sterling, for this guy and his food take? Okay. Adam. Adam says, hi, Bruce. Love the pods. Love the tweets. Love the allure of your fake persona that even your roommate is committed to. Here is my almighty take about food. When a dish is served with sauce on it, a part of it, or a dipping sauce on the side, more sauce is always better than less sauce. I'll provide examples. I'm a sauce guy. I always want to dip bread or other absorptive or high structural integrity edible vehicles into a sauce of whatever dish there is. Pasta with any sauce, make sure there's extra sauce. And I'll scoop it up with bread. Enchilada, load me up with that red and green sauce. Rice bowl dish, regardless of it being Korean barbecue or chipotle, give me all the sauce on top and make that rice and the whole dish way more flavorful. Sometimes, and really most of the time, it's more about the sauce than the vehicle. Something crunchy into any dairy-based tailgate dip. A selection of aiolis that come with fries. A selection of house sauces at a barbecue joint. It's all about the sauce. Wet consistency that can bring better and more intense flavor homogeneously into every bite. Dry foods without sauce that make you feel like you did a saltine challenge are not worth it. Even below average sauce is still mostly better than no sauce. Bad sauce, however, is an exception to the tick. Bad sauce is a travesty. It's not like pizza where even bad pizza is good to you, pizza. Bad sauce, let's say a zero to two out of 10, should be avoided at all costs. Adam. Okay, I'm going first. Here we go. I'm all the way out on this take. I'm all the way. I'm sorry, Adam. I love you. I am all the way out on this take. I'm not saying that less sauce is better. I'm saying that I don't believe that in all cases, more sauce is better. And I'll tell you why. Because I do think some of the things that you've talked about that have sauce on them or have sauce over them, right, 
have flavors that then become completely lost if there's too much sauce. All you're doing, if you put too much sauce on there, what you've done is you've turned whatever you put the sauce on or dipped into the sauce into only contributing texture to the dish. That's it. Just texture. Because all of the underlying flavors are gone because you drowned it in sauce. So for example, let's say you have a pasta dish and you have pasta and you have chicken and you have Alfredo sauce. Great. If you put too much Alfredo sauce on there, you're not going to be able to taste the chicken. Any seasoning you put on the chicken, what's the point? You oversauced it. The grilling that you did, the marinating you did with the chicken, doesn't matter. Too much sauce. So at that point, why even put chicken in there? The only thing you're doing is contributing texture. You're not actually contributing additional taste. So you're actually simplifying the dish. The more out of balance the sauce to underlying, underlying vehicle becomes. The more out of balance the dish becomes, the less complicated and the less enjoyable the dish could potentially be. So in some cases like dipping sauce, if you give me the most dipping sauce in the world, it doesn't really matter because I get to decide with every single dip how much sauce I want. So that doesn't really apply here. But when it's dish served with sauce on it, then I'm like, okay, let's take a burger, for example. Not only do I have an issue where I potentially lose all of the underlying flavors of a burger if you put too much sauce on it. In addition, now I've created a mess. Sometimes I see these burgers on like diners driving the dives or burgers brewing queue or something like that. And I'm like, I can't eat that. It's 14 stories tall and is slop. It's not a burger. That's a casserole. So for me, I'm all the way out. I think everything needs to be done with specific moderation in mind and with specific balance in mind. So I do not think more is always better. Sterling, I think our friendship might be hinging on your take on this take, man. I, I think, yeah. I, think I, I need you to say certain things here, man. So hit me up. Okay. First of all, what's, who, what's the guy's name who had that original take? Adam. Okay. I got a lot of respect for Adam. See, see Bruce, this is where you and I are going to disagree. Okay, I am from the South, okay, the deep South, and we believe in this thing called gravy. Gravy goes on every damn thing, okay? And when I go to Chick-fil-A, okay, this is just a, a side piece. When I go to Chick-fil-A, I want that Polynesian, not only on my chicken sandwich, but also with my fries. I am a sauce guy through and through. Now, there is something that could be excessive sauce, but I think sauce is a, is a, is a good best friend to have at the table. Okay, sauce absolutely done. Overdone can destroy a dish, but I am a sauce guy through and through. So Adam, I, me and you, we we see things alike. This is probably why I'm a bigger guy because I just enjoy sauces. That's just me. Okay, well at least you admitted that such a thing as excessive sauce. So if I can, if we can agree on the fact that at some point there is such a thing as too much sauce, then I, I think I think we can continue to coexist. So I'm excited about that. All right, here we go. This is the last take. It's from Sean. He says, tell me I'm wrong. Playing tight end is about basketball-like spatial awareness. I think part of being tight end is like that. But I quite think that playing Y, playing tight end, playing against zone coverage in general as a wide receiver, I think a lot of that trickles into spatial awareness, understanding how to – get yourself open, understanding where you are on the field 
and realizing what the quarterback is seeing and presenting yourself to a quarterback, I do think that that's a big part of playing against zone coverage. And I do think that given how much zone teams typically play over the middle of the field, I think that tight end has a tendency to be slanted in that side. I just don't think it only applies to tight end, nor do I think the tight end position is all about that. I think one of the reasons why you have tight end development on a slower curve is because you're learning a lot of blocking techniques like offensive linemen, and you're learning a lot of receiver routes like receivers. Now, you don't block the same way as offensive linemen as tight end. That's just, that's not what you do. And you don't have the exact same receiver routes as a tight end that you do when you actually play outside receiver. A lot of those things are very different, but it's a hybrid position by its definition. Like by what it is, it's a hybrid position. And that always takes a little bit longer to, to develop. And I do think spatial awareness is a big part of that because it's part of playing receiver in the NFL. Part of catching balls specifically against zone coverage in the NFL is being able to present yourself to a quarterback and understanding when and where to set yourself down. And I think that a player that we've talked about a lot on this podcast, Zach Ertz, is someone who's really good at that. I don't think he's a dynamic field stretcher, but if you get him, that's what you're getting. You're getting someone who has a good feel for zone coverage. I don't think he's running away from man at this point. I don't think he's making significant contested catches, but I think that he helps this team specifically against zone to be able to keep the sticks moving. Sterling, you had the last word, my friend. Tight ends, basketball space awareness, what say you? Yeah, I think it's I think it's critical. And I think it also goes to knowing who's in the room as well. You know, I think there are guys like if you look from, you know, an NBA point of view, there are ball dominant guards, right? Like Luka Doncic, you know, the, the, the narrative around him right now is, OK, our players going to want to link up with him in free agency because he's ball dominant and he needs space. Right. I think Zach Ertz is one of those guys that he is a master of space. Emmanuel Sanders is a master of finding space. Um, I think this Buffalo Bills offense has a, you know, as one of their uh, sub-attributes, I mean, outside of being, you know, that the guys are great route runners, but they are great at finding space in zones. And I think that's probably the main reason why they want Zach Ertz, because they're going to spread you out and they want smart guys in the room who are going to make adjustments on the fly. It's one of the things that makes Josh Allen who he is. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, we did it. We were not originally going to have a guest, and we were not originally going to go for an hour and 10 minutes, but those two things are related. When I have a chance to bring in somebody who I think can say smart things on my show and make me look good, I'm going to do it. That's what I'm going to do. So when I saw Sterling hop on, I was like, hey, man, let's do it. It's a spur-of-the-moment thing, but never let it be said that Bruce is not someone who can adjust on the fly. I don't like adjusting on the fly, but you know what? If the right person comes along, you got to do it, and the right person came along. Sterling, before you leave, tell everybody where they can find you, where they can find your work, because I desperately need to make sure that this is not the only time they hear you. Yeah, no, and Bruce, thank you for uh, having me on. I know you don't have on many guests at all, so it is it is truly an honor uh, to just be aside alongside you, work with you, and just uh, to hear your brilliant football mind and your takes on food and everything else. Um, you know, you can find me on Twitter at uh, Furrow Sterling. I am a part of the Cover One Network. Uh, I also do the Hoof Podcast that's on Tuesday nights. We're going to be starting up here 
in probably two weeks. And we have a uh, Friday podcast that you can find on most major uh, social media platforms uh, as well. So that's going to be coming up here in the next two weeks. So we're going to be back in the saddle and uh, giving you the goods. You know, our show is a little bit different. Um, it's, you know, we, we kind of fit the cover one mode of dorky and nerdy. And then, you know, we have all three of us kind of have uh, eccentric personalities in, in some sort of way. So we kind of give you a blend. But uh, we appreciate all the listeners and uh, all the support. Guys, I don't know what to tell you. Go find Sterling. Hit the follow button. You can thank me later. And if you don't do that, then I guess I don't really have anything else to tell you aside from that's the way the cookie crumbles. I'm Bruce Nolan, Buffalo Rumblings.